0: if you would, grab a Bible and turn to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. This morning we're in chapter 2, and if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 1075. 1075. And as was said earlier, if you're new to the Bible, uh, we're really glad you're here. I encourage you to open the, the Bible and look at the chapters and verses with us. The big numbers of the chapters, small, small, verse, small numbers of the verses. It'll help you see what the text is saying. We believe that this is God's word. And so God has spoken. And so he wants you to see it to know what he says. That's why, that's why we do what we're doing right now. So let's, let's pray and ask for his help. Lord, we thank you for your word. but We do believe that you have spoken. And we pray now that you would speak through the reading and public proclamation of what you've said. God, we pray that the Spirit would permit me to speak and permit us to hear. And, Lord, you would work in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know if our local resident pediatrician remembers saying this or not, but I've heard him describing new parents in his office who, you might not know this or, or not, but are often afraid of every little thing that happens to their kid. The smallest little bump is a, is a quick rush to the hospital, uh, in the emergency room, only to find out it's just a bruise, child's going to be okay. And along the way, you get parents in, 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 in his office and ask him, well, what, what, what do we do, and how do, you, how do you get them to eat more, and how do, you, how do you get them to go to sleep? And I remember Tom one time saying, well, you can't make them sleep, and you can't make them eat. So love on them, take care of them, they're going to be all right. <laughs> And yet this is the two things that parents stress out the most about. How do you get the food in the child and get it to stay there? And how do you get them to go to sleep and stay asleep? Because they have to grow. They need to grow up and they they need the nutrients and they need the sleep. And we need the sleep. Well, this passage this morning is is all about growing. Peter is urging us to grow up. And so God wants to say to us today, He wants to, he wants to convince us to, to, to embrace this calling, to grow up into your new calling. He wants you to grow up into your new calling. Two, two things in this passage I want to just, just use to highlight the calling to grow up. The first one you're going to find in verses 1 through 3. And we could say this, desire growth In Jesus' new life, desire growth in Jesus' new life, verses one through three. And then we need to see that that God wants us to live as an offering through Jesus. He wants us to live as an offering through Jesus, and this is verses four to 10. So to grow into our new calling, we need to desire growth in Jesus' new life. And we need to live as an offering through Jesus. Let's read beginning in verse 1 through 10 in chapter 2. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up into your salvation, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves, as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, see, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. They were destined for this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This passage and the way that we've divided it up in verses 1 through 3 and 4 through 10 sort of begins with the big application. What should we be doing? How should we be living? Verses 1 through 3. We should be desiring to grow up into the new life in Jesus. And then verses 4 to 10 really lay a big theological foundation that that remind us who you are now and why we're going to live this way. He both, they both looks back to verses 1 through 3 in chapter 1, but it also prepares us for what he's going to say in the next couple of sermons and in the, in, the, in the verses that follow. So that's, that's kind of what you have here in these two big uh, ideas. So let's think about desiring growth in Jesus' new life. Peter, in these first three verses, uses two metaphors. He has a metaphor of, of dressing and undressing. So so that's in the in the in the phrase rid yourselves, and then he has the other metaphor in in the idea of nursing, in the phrase of desire pure milk. So so two two totally different metaphors that overlap to make his main point. They don't uh, they, they, they overlap, but they but they uh, they don't overlap in their ideas, but they but they work together in this idea of essentially Peter's version of what Paul calls put off the old man. Put on the new man. You know, you remember this in Paul's writings, put off and put on. So this is sort of Peter's version of put off the old and put on the new. And it continues the theme of living out our new family traditions or our new culture that we have in Jesus. Since we've been saved, since we've been born again, we have a whole new uh, identity, a whole new name, a a whole new us, really. And so it continues the imperatives that we heard last week. Remember, in chapter 1, he called us to put our hope fully in the coming grace that's going to be brought to us when Jesus comes back. And then he called us to be holy as God is holy, to dedicate our lives to God, come out of the world, and dedicate everything we are to him. And in the process of that, live with a, with a fear of God that has a holy reverence, that's aware that God is present He's with us, which should bring us joy, but he's with us, so it should also keep us living in in his holiness. And then at the end of the chapter, he called us to love one another with a sincere and pure love. And that, he's going to pick back up as he starts to exhort us here. So just remind yourself by looking at verse 22, what he said there in last week. What we looked at last week. Since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, So that you show sincere brotherly love for each other from a pure heart. Love one another constantly. So part of what we said about that is that God sets us in this new family. He he doesn't just save you as an individual and then like sort of launch you out and say, I'll see you at the end. But he saves you and he brings you into his church and he reorients you to a new family. And he says, these are your brothers and sisters. These are the people I want you to focus on loving. And so he calls us love each other in this way. And he has some adjectives there in in verse 22 that you you need to have in your head as we go to uh, here in uh, the second chapter. Notice that he said there a sincere brotherly love and from a pure heart. So that'll make more sense as we see these verses. But just remind yourself real quick of the two dominant ideas so far running through Peter's letter. As we've looked at chapter 1. Two really big ideas, lots of big things, but two sort of themes that run through. You, he tells us that when we heard the gospel and we believe the good news about Jesus, you and I were born again into a new life where, where now God is our father. We call him father. We call on him as father. We realize that when he says, I chose you, he's saying that you belong to me. You're in my family. You, you have a people. Right? So we were born again to a, to a new life. We have a, a new father. We're, we're like children. And now we have an inheritance that he promises us. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. And as that, he then calls us to be citizens of his kingdom. Right? So last week we were thinking about the imperatives that he gives and how he says, live this way, no longer live the way the world does. Instead, come out. And start living the way that your new identity in Jesus defines. What, 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 whatever God is, whoever God reveals himself to be in scripture, in his holiness, as he shows that, you and I are to, to embrace that and let that shape us. Right? Just like you, you, you sit around the dinner table growing up, hopefully, uh, with, with your parents and, and your siblings and you have discussions. And all of that, all of that family activity is shaping you. It's, it's, it's defining you. It's giving you culture. You're remembering who you are and where you're from. And when you go out into the world, you carry that name, right? And so God has called us and given us that. Well, well, here, we're picked up again. Notice, notice how verse 2, he says, Like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word. This is the same theme of new birth, new family, new name, new inheritance, new identity. The other big theme... That started last week is, is how we Since we belong to a different family we, we live that way We live in this In this family identity Now before we go any further Look at the stated goal Of these verses At the end The second part of verse 2 You can see it there He says So that By it You may grow up Into your salvation So he, he tells us Like newborn infants Desire the pure milk of the word Why? So that we would grow up into our salvation. We're, we're like newborn infants. We're, we're, we're like babies. Just like a baby is born into this world and doesn't know how to walk or talk or eat or, or, or any of that stuff, we, we are reborn in, into God. And as we're reborn, we're like babies again. And so we also have to grow up. We have to desire the milk that's gonna make us grow so that we can enter into maturity. And, and, and become the, the, the godly person that God wants us to be. Think about this. The, the, the salvation that he's talking about here, growing up into, is what he's been, he's been laying out. In, in verse 9 of chapter 1, he said that salvation is the goal of our faith. Right? He says you'll receive the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then in verse 10, he reminded us that all the prophets of the old covenant were prophesying, promising, and preparing and looking into the time when God would bring this salvation. Again, it's, a, it's about salvation. And then in verse 12, he, he, he told them that it, this is what has been announced to you. When, when, when the word came about Jesus dying and being raised from the dead and ascending to the right hand of the Father, that was announced that what God had promised has begun. And then we saw in the last verse of chapter 1 where he says in, at the end of verse 25, This word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Now he says, grow up into it. Grow up into it. Peter wants us to really know and really grow in the meaning of, I've been saved. When we go around with our Christian jargon and we say, I've been saved, he wants us to know and to grow in what that means. So that if you use those words and you say, I've been saved, you, you get the fullness of it, right? Forgiveness of sins is really important, but it's not the whole thing. Salvation is the, is the bringing of a, of a lost, separated person who's lost in their sin and separated from God and ignorant of him and his ways and really a child of another world. And through new birth of hearing about Jesus' death and resurrection, birthed into a life that is totally different. That is totally different. And and now having been birthed, you begin to learn what God plans for you. You begin to learn about the inheritance that's coming. The grace that's going to be brought. The end of time of which all things are moving. And you begin to hope out into the future as to what salvation is going to be brought. That's just a little bit about what God we've learned and begun learning about salvation. God wants us, though, to know and to grow in what it means fully. So he tells us, desire or crave the spiritual milk. You see that there in verse two. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word. I love this analogy that he has this metaphor as he he links us, and he wants our minds to go to a newborn. Everybody's Seen a newborn, you know the, 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 uh, the cry of a newborn that has a very distinct, almost goat-like cry <laughs> that you can hear on an airplane that everyone sighs and tries to find another seat to get away from. Because everybody knows when that baby begins to get hungry, we, we all hope mom is close. Because babies will instinctively just cry they can't even utter the words, but they, but they cry with their craving because they need nourishment. None of us, I don't think, remember even what that feels like. But it, it must, to, to a child, if they could put words on it, it must feel like the world. I'm going to die if I don't get food because that's the way they act. Perhaps sometimes Shaking. Uh, nothing can soothe and satisfy. You can give a pacifier, and that will pacify for a moment, perhaps. You, you, can, you can give a toy. Uh, you, you can make noises and play music in, in the hopes of prolonging and giving a little bit more time. But nothing is going to satisfy the craving of the newborn child except his mother's milk. And the miracle of all miracles that we've all been learning about recently in the past 10 years or so is the miracle of breast milk. And how in the world is a child sustained on this fluid? It's like a miracle drug. It, it has all the nutrients that, that a child needs, all of them. They don't need steak. They don't need a hamburger. They don't need a well-balanced milk. They just need the mother's milk. Because God has put everything by this miracle of creation that the child needs that, that he or she gets from mom. And so a newborn child doesn't crave anybody else or anything else but just wants mom. That image is what God wants us to think of when we think about being a newborn infant. He wants us to desire and recognize that we need the pure spiritual milk that only God gives. Now, what does that mean? What what is this milk that we should be craving? Well, the CSB, the translation that we're using, has done a little bit of the work for us by telling us that that what the ESV translates as spiritual, so spiritual milk, in the CSB here says the milk of the word. So, so they've, they've, they've helped to try to define spiritual and what we mean by spiritual. And there is some precedent for that. Uh, there's the immediate connections in the previous verse, so verse 25 that talks about the word. And the verses right before that, that remind us that the word of God will, will live forever. And it's the word of God that's proclaimed to us about Jesus that causes new birth as we believe in it. There's also a word play in the Greek, so um, I don't want to get your attention on Greek words, but just he- you can hear it though. Logos is the is the Greek word for word, and here the word for spiritual is logikon. So there's a there's a there's a you can just hear it. There's a there's a play on words that he might be pulling from. And then there's also the sincere love from a pure heart that we just read in verse 22. And that's definitely contrasted with the pure milk here in verse 2. Right? So, so there's something going on with all those connections that we should be thinking of. Now, in your mind, you might want to go back to other places in the New Testament where milk is mentioned. And it's, it's mentioned in two other places. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 2, and in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 and 13, both Paul and the author of Hebrews uh, are, are telling uh, their, their readers that they are drinking milk. But there, it's negative. It, 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 they, they're only drinking the, the very elemental, basic elements of what it means to be a Christian. And they fail to mature they fail to move on up and grow, what Peter's calling us to, and to grow in their faith. And so they have to just keep drinking milk. So it's very negative in those contexts. But Peter here has it, is saying something a little bit different. You'll notice this isn't negative at all. He says, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word or the spiritual, pure spiritual milk. Well, verse 3 pushes us beyond an emphasis to just have more consistent quiet times. Peter's not saying to us, hey, you really just need to read the Bible more. That might be a good application of this, but that's, he, he's pushing us toward this bigger idea. And notice verse 3. Notice how it's either italicized or bold in your text. He says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now, you know where that came from because we've, we've said it and sung it in this, in this service. Where does it come from? Psalm 34. Okay, so Psalm 34 is what he has in mind when he calls us to desire or crave the pure spiritual milk. Well, what's Psalm 34 about? Well, you remember that's when David was fleeing from Saul. David was the anointed king. He was going to become king, but Saul was still the king. And Saul had departed from the Lord by not fulfilling the commands of God. And he had begun to seek his own kingdom. And as part of that, he began trying to kill David. And David found himself in his own country, a stranger. And he went out and he, he had to go to the Philistines and to try to find some protection. Now, the Philistines are their enemies. And so he goes and he pretends to be a madman and a crazy man. And in that process, he writes Psalm 34. The title of Psalm 34 tells us that that's the context of, his, of, of when that happened. And what he said, what we sang, this poor man cried. And the Lord heard me. This poor man cried, and the Lord delivered me from all of my enemies. And he says, those who look to the Lord are radiant. What does that remind you of? That reminds you of when Moses was on the mountain. And he's looking at God. And because of the glory of God, Moses being exposed to the glory of God, it actually made his face glow. So much so that when he came down from the mountain, he had to put a veil over it because he had seen something of the, of the goodness and glory of God. Now, you, you could go on. You could, you could spend some more time in Psalm 34, and I would encourage you to do that just to sort of unpack for yourself the goodness of God that's tied to the spiritual milk. But, but here, here's, here's where this is going. You and I are to see how tasting and seeing is the equivalent of experiencing a life with God, of, of experiencing an intimacy with God so that when we are in trouble, we, ca- we cry out to him. We, we depend on him. We want him. And because we depend on him, we, we, we can only do that if we know him. So that's where the word comes in. Like that's, that's how we know God. We know God because he reveals himself and he does that through words, the words of scripture, right? Right? So, so certainly that's a good application of this. But, but the, the, the reason to do that is not so that you would just have a, a, a wide awareness of what the Bible says. It's ultimately so that you would have the God who wrote the Bible. God wants you and me to be intimate with him. To have the kind of relationship that depends on him. Where our, our countenance radiates the glory of God to others because we actually know him. And we actually walk with him. This is what Peter means when he says, desire that kind of milk. Long to grow up into salvation so that you know God in a way that you have tasted and seen and you can express that to others. To crave the milk that Peter's talking about is to create the intimacy that David describes as the life of God. And mark this. Look, look at verse 14 of chapter 1. So remember what he said there. He said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. And then verse 18. For you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold. Last week, in thinking about those verses... I encourage us not, uh, or to to resist the the cultural pull to give in to every desire and inclination of your heart, right? Remember that we're, we're told that to be a true, authentic person, then that whatever's driving you defines you, and whatever's driving you needs to be given into in order to become you. Well, if the world lives that way, that's their choice, it's a fool's errand. And last week, as we said, it's actually slavery. It's presented as freedom, but it's really slavery. But if you're in Christ, that can't be true of you. You you cannot be defined by those kinds of desires. Well, what does he say here? Compare the desires you're no longer to be conformed to in, in chapter one, verse 14. And then notice verse two, of our chapter, like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word. Desire God. So instead of letting the desires and impulses of the heart drive you and define you, instead, in Christ, what we are to do is to desire God and let that new desire for him shape us. That's who you're supposed to be in Jesus. So you desire God. That's the legitimate Christian desire to give into. That's where we want to be. That's the way we want to live our lives. So, church, I, I just want to encourage us to cultivate that desire. Cultivate that. Develop a palate for him. That where where, where the, the tastes of this world start to become bitter. And they're no longer sweet or tempting or savory. But instead, where the, when, when you taste the real milk of God... Let that make you push away those lesser desires. It's kind of like, again, with the children analogy. Peter's doing it, so let's, let's stay with it. If you're, when you're trying to feed your kids and you, you have the pureed uh, vegetables, right? And you're feeding them at first, it's, it's exciting. They've never tasted anything, <laughs> right? Colorful carrots pureed and, and served up on a spoon. It's like, what is this? But if you have that and then next to it you serve applesauce, I don't know about your kids, but my kids, when you go back with the carrots, they go like that. And they go, uh, uh, because they want the applesauce. What God wants us to do as we grow up is to develop a refined palate that says, I I want, I want the Lord. I want the sugar of this world that doesn't nourish and cause me to grow and sustain me. I I want, I want the meat, the, 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 the spiritual milk that God gives The other analogy that he gives us here, the metaphor that we've kind of skipped over, is in verse one, and this is how verse one comes into play. He says, "Rid yourselves." This is this is the garment uh, language. The, the word there, "rid yourselves," it, it's it's the idea. The word it's a word picture of taking off a garment, and so this is just another way of saying that as we've lived our lives, we've picked up the clothing and the fashions of this world, right? Anybody knows that when you when you uh, at least Previously, when you joined certain businesses or or like you worked on Wall Street, you you wore a suit. Uh, I have an uncle that's that's a financial advisor, and he doesn't wear a tie anymore. And he says, whenever J.P. Morgan stops wearing ties, we don't have to wear them anymore. Because those are the big guys, and they define what we do. Well, fashion is a way in which people project where they belong and who they are. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Some people ignore it. But, but the clothing and the styling and, and all of those things, the whole world is clamoring to use to, to, to say, I'm with this group, I'm with that group, I'm this kind of person, I'm that kind of person. And that's exactly what we do. Well, really though, what defines us and what, what shows who we are is our character. And so, so Peter says, take off the clothing that is described here in verse one. Look at what he says. He says, all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. Malice is just ill will. It's that, it's that heart condition where you're looking at others and saying, I just don't like you. I hope things don't go well for you. He says, put, put, put that away, all of it. The small thought, as well as the big, the big out loud statement. All deceit and hypocrisy. We know what these are. Envy is that jealousy that looks at somebody else and says, I just want what you have. And so I live my life craving what you have. And all slander. If I have to shape the conversation and the narrative in a certain way so that I come out looking better and you come out looking worse, well then that's what I'll do. No, he says, if you're in Christ, you have to put all those things away. Now, where does he direct this to? Well, where did he direct us to love in verse 22 of chapter 1? He's specifically saying amongst ourselves. He's specifically saying this because as you come into this family of God, you're going to interact with one another, and you're going to bring your heart, and you're going to bring your thoughts. And as sinners come together, what do sinners do? We we sin against each other. And that comes from from these kinds of things. But what he wants us to do instead is love with a pure heart. As you desire the pure milk, and you do that, you put away, you you shed the things that you brought in the door with you. These are all habits of character. Notice the the things that these things have in common. They're habits of character that are directed at relationships. All the things that are listed there in verse 1 have to do with other people. The way you and I look at other people, the way you and I have secret thoughts about other people, the way, we, the way we interact with others, they're all in common with that. And they're also in common in that they're all designed in our hearts to protect ourselves. Like if you had one word that sort of wrapped all of them up, it's, it's, it's self-love. right? So, so another way you could say it is rid yourself of all self-love so that you can love one another consistently. You and I have to drop the self-interest in order to get the pure spiritual milk. That's the other way that this has th- these things have in common and how they, how they come together. I mentioned that there's an overlap, the way that they, they, drive, they drive the point home. If we're going to desire God, and you're going to actually fulfill what Peter's calling us to here, you and I have to put away those heart things that make us focus on everybody else and this world's stuff and the love of self. Because that is in direct competition with desiring God. We will never desire God for who he is and taste and see his goodness as long as we're looking at everybody else and we're walking with ill will and deceit and jealousy and hypocrisy and putting on a face and not being sincere. So he wants us to put off that and put on a desire that's centered on the goodness of God. That's the biggest way we're going to grow up. But we're also going to grow up as we grow in our identity in knowing what exactly, how exactly God thinks about us. And that's the the second thing that we saw here or that I want us to see is live as an offering through Jesus. Live as an offering through Jesus. What is here in these verses is very profound theology. Peter's going to help us with a big dose of pure milk right now. He's going to unpack the whole Old Testament trajectory in a few verses. So, are you ready for this? <laughs> to grow up, we have to understand what God's doing in the church. What is this gathering? What are local churches? Why do they exist? What's the identity of a local church. Well, in the Old Testament, God used types and shadows to begin to set a framework so that when the gospel would come, we would recognize it and understand what he's done. So Peter wants us to think in types and shadows for just a minute. In the Old Testament, which is something a lot of people get lost in, I understand, God set up an institution around a physical temple. One of the ways people get lost in the Old Testament, you're reading along, you get to Exodus, and there's this huge section of a very detailed description of how Moses is to build a very specific tabernacle. Some people skip that in their Bible reading. Don't skip that. But then you keep going. You're like, okay, I got past that, and you keep moving along. You get to Leviticus, and you have this whole sacrificial system, very detailed sacrificial system, right? Some people skip that. Don't skip that. But then you go on and you, and you see as the tabernacle moves and they get into the Exodus. you're moving through the narratives of the Old Testament and you, you're, you're kind of moving along, you're enjoying the narratives and then you come to the building of the temple with Solomon. And it takes up a lot of chapters in 1 Kings. And you say, man, why all these details about the tabernacle and the temple? Don't skip that. But then that temple is destroyed when, they, when Israel does not do what God told them to do. He warned them, he urged them, he encouraged them, he gave them the law, and he said, If you don't obey me, I'm going to bring in another nation, and they will destroy this place, and they will take you as captives. That's exactly what happened. And the temple that Solomon built was leveled to the ground. And as you keep reading along, you find that there they are in in Babylon, and they're longing to go back home and do what? Rebuild the temple. And Ezekiel prophesies of this magnificent temple, this this temple that's going to exceed the glory of Solomon's first temple. And so you read along, and in Ezra and Nehemiah, they go back and they rebuild a temple. But they cry. They cry. Because it doesn't have the glory that even Solomon's temple had. It didn't have the glory that Ezekiel prophesied. It wasn't the temple God was preparing them for. Well, when you come to Jesus in the new covenant, we finally get to the temple God was preparing his people for. Listen to Exodus 29 at the very beginning of all that narrative through the Old Testament of what God said about the tabernacle that was going to become the temple. He said, there I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons, I will consecrate to serve me as priests. I will dwell among the people of Israel and I will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Another way you can say that, who saved them so that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord, their God. The temple and the tabernacle is all about the presence of God moving in among his people where God draws near and dwells with with us. The temple was the way God did it. And before Jesus, there had to be sacrifices. There had to be a curtain that we sung about being torn in two. There had to be separation, right? Right? And Gentiles themselves were not allowed in the court. I mean, they were only allowed in the court. They weren't allowed to go into the temple because it was a sacred, separate space. And all of that was to say to people, this is how you come to me. And it was also expressing God's desire to be among us. And then you read that Jesus came and took on flesh and what? John 1, 14, tabernacled or tented Or you could say templed among us. Jesus, the temple, showed up. And so there he is saying things like, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And John says Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. Jesus is the presence of God templing among people And coming face to face with people. And so all along the way in Jesus' time, you remember he's transfigured on the mountain. And John and Peter are there and they saw him. And they saw for a moment him glorified. And what did they say? They said, should we build more tents? (laughs) More temples? More tabernacles? Because the glory of God is being shown in the person of Jesus on the earth. But that's that's not the fullness of it. Jesus' tabernacling among us had an even bigger purpose to establish a bigger temple, a more significant temple. The end times temple that Ezekiel was talking about, that Revelation points us to at the very end of the book. And so in light of all of that, think about these words as you read them in verse 4. As you come to him... A living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God. You yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built into a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All that Old Testament pattern and trajectory was leading to this. Our inclusion that we would be living stones, that is, that we would be born new, alive to God, that the Spirit would actually dwell in us as individual Christians and corporately as the church. This is why Paul in, in, in Corinthians is writing and saying, we are the temple of God. The, the, the presence of God dwells among, among us As we have the Spirit and as we gather in our corporate gatherings, this is the assembly of the Lord. This is the place where Jesus walks the aisles. He's among the lampstands in the temple. He's here. And our role as redeemed individuals is to see and understand that the priests of the Old Testament were shadows of what every New Testament believer would be, that you and I would be priests that we are like laborers that work in the temple, but instead of bringing lambs that other sinners have brought to sacrifice, all of our sins have already been paid for in Jesus. So there's no lambs with blood to sprinkle and offer up on the altar. Instead, we are now free to offer spiritual sacrifices that are already acceptable to God. Have you ever noticed that? That is profound. These are spiritual sacrifices verse 5 compared to physical sacrifices in the old covenant. What are they? What are the spiritual sacrifices that we offer? We offer worship. Because I had got to study this passage ahead of time as we as I stood down here and as we're singing the songs that we're singing as we're uh, going to sing soon again, just think about this when you're singing. The 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 voices of the congregation coming together around the truth of God and the, and the remembrance of the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus, we are exalting the Lord together. The sacrifice of praise is rising like incense at the altar in the temple up to God. And it's a pleasing aroma and sacrifice to God. As you give in generosity, you give unto the Lord a, a spiritual sacrifice up to God. As you pray, and you bring your burdens, and you say, Lord, I care about this issue. I care about this person. I hate that she's going through that. And you fast, or you pray for your brother, and you say, Lord, help them. Be with them. You're offering a priestly prayer as a sacrifice to God that is acceptable, a spiritual act of worship. As I preach, I present a sermon that I've labored in during the week as an offering to God. So that we would all worship the Lord together. These are the things that make up spiritual sacrifices. The good deeds that Titus urges us to. What is it, five times through the book of Titus? uh, Paul says, urge them to be zealous about good deeds. Why? Because good deeds save you and make up for your sin? No. No. That's ridiculous when when you understand the gospel. You can't do that and neither do you need to because Jesus has been slain. But if all that's happened and all your sins has been paid for, then, then good deeds are something I want to do all the time. <laughs> because I'm looking to worship. I'm looking to offer a priestly sacrifice to the Lord, spiritual offerings to God. That's what we're doing. That's what this gathering is. That's what we do as Christians. Remember Romans 12, 1 again. This, this came up last week. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Listen to Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Your body is an offering to offer to God. Why resist sexual temptation? Why not give in to the innate desires that, that want to drive you, that everybody says, if you want to be a true you, you got to do? Because you belong to God. Because you're a priest in his household. You're part of a temple where God dwells. And I don't just mean Grace Harbor. I mean, I mean, you are in Jesus. Look at what he says in verse 6. For it stands in scripture, see, I laid a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. When Jesus was raised from the dead, the cornerstone of the new temple was set by the great architect. And on that stone, God is laying the the bricks that make the new spiritual temple. And that's us. Notice how he said it again in verse 5. You yourselves as living stones. In the way that Jesus is alive and living, we are alive and living. The way that Jesus is the cornerstone, we're stones in the temple. And so we're built on Jesus. And so look at verse 7. So honor will come to you who believe, but for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone. A stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobeyed the word. It's all about how you and I respond to the gospel. To the announcement about Jesus Jesus who he is, the sacrifice he's made, the sin that's been paid for, and the resurrected life that he lives and he gives to us. If you and I repent and believe in Jesus, if we are trusting in him, we are living stones in his temple. But if we're not, we trip on him. And the warnings of judgment fall on us by that same stone. This is one of those hard truths that our culture is not willing to embrace. But, church, notice this Jesus was rejected outright. I've, I've dabbled in some stonework at my house, and I happen to know that when you order a pallet of stone and you try to put a wall up or you put a brick patio down, you can use almost all those stones. Because the big, the big nice ones you want to lay first, and obviously those are the, the clear and obvious ones, and like a puzzle, you, you start to put them together. But when you get towards the end, you use a hammer, and you chip, you chip some to form them so that they do fit. And at the end, if you did it right, there, you don't have and you made your order correct, you, you, you don't have that big of a pile left over. There's only some stones that you don't use in that case. Jesus was a stone that the builders all together looked at and threw out they said of Jesus not useful for anything and they threw him to the side and they crucified him that's what men did to Jesus but our text says he was actually precious and he was chosen by God God has the final say and so, when the builders took Jesus and they said, "Not useful for anything," he said, "No, useful for the whole thing." And he said it, Jesus is the cornerstone. If you're here today and you're not following Jesus, you have to understand that not following him is tripping on him. And verse eight says that you will stumble over and trip over. And you will fall under the judgment and wrath of God. Humanity does not encounter the gospel of Jesus and remain neutral. That's not possible. Jesus is the dividing line with God and humanity. Humanity is divided up into people who follow God by believing in Jesus. Or who do not and will not and are rejected by him. Church, I want to urge you to trust in Jesus. As Goplet said, Christ is laid on the path of humanity on its course into the future. In the encounter, each person is changed, one for salvation, another for destruction. One, however, simply cannot step over Jesus and go about on in the daily routine of life and pass him by to build a future. There is no future if you step over the cornerstone. But don't miss the connection for us, church. In verses 9 and 10, how he brings it back to the identity that we have in Jesus that we are now. And he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the the praises of the one who calls you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Jesus was rejected by men, chosen by God. Peter writes to a people who are exiles in their hometown. They are rejected by men because they trusted in Jesus. They said, I don't want the culture of this world anymore. I want the culture of Jesus. And because of that, the world said, well, then we don't want you. But think about what Peter's saying. He's saying they'd said that to Jesus and he's the cornerstone. They're saying to you, I can't go with you if you're going to follow Jesus. But he says, listen, you're rejected by men, but you're chosen by God. And then he applies all of the main descriptions that belong to Israel. To the Gentile believing Christians that he's writing to. Chosen race, royal priesthood, holy nation, people for his possession. Do you see that? That's amazing. This is taken from Exodus 19 when they left Egypt. It's taken from Isaiah 43 that we read earlier. And it's taken, verse 10 is taken from Hosea chapter 2, uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2, when God said, Those who are named not my people will be called my people. All the key titles that belong to Israel in the covenant of Moses, Peter ascribes to Christians today. So if you're looking for a passage that clearly describes who is considered Israel today by God, this one's really clear. But listen, this is not uh, replacement theology. Rather, it's fulfillment theology. You see, Judaism without trust in Jesus as the Messiah is a different religion altogether than Christianity. These aren't similar religions that compete with one another. Christianity is Judaism fulfilled. It's everything God was doing and saying and acting on come to fruition. And so if you want the promises of the old covenant, you have to come to Jesus. What God did with with Israel, he was doing and bringing to fulfillment in the coming of his son, Jesus of Nazareth. He's the living stone upon which the whole spiritual house is built on. In Jesus, we are the people who were not previously his people, but who are now called my people. So what's the point of all this? God wants us to know what he's been leading us towards. What has happened to us in coming to Jesus and how he sees you and me. The special honor Israel had is the honor that's now given to us in the church. And anyone, no matter what race, tribe, or tongue you're from who believes in Jesus is called into this people. And you become a member of his temple and you become a priest serving in his service. The honor that comes in believing in Jesus. So church, laying aside the fashions of this world, we must desire the life of God and grow up into our new calling, into salvation. Let's pray. Father, we praise and we thank you. We ask you to make it real in our hearts and lead us into spiritual sacrifices all day. In Jesus' name, amen.